I had a fabulous time with Chelsea today. This is one of those interviews that's like a really long time coming. And they are, she is both one of the most impressive individuals we've interviewed, as well as I think her brand has been just unbelievable from a performance perspective since she's joined uh, to today. Remember, if you enjoyed the show today, guys, be a friend, tell a friend, and hit subscribe. All right, guys, enjoy the show. Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, I have Chelsea Riggs, the global president of Amica, an absolutely phenomenal hair care brand and formerly one of the largest independent hair care brands in uh, the U.S., but has recently been acquired uh, by Bansk Group. Um, welcome to the show, Chelsea. Connor, we've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm really excited about it. I am pumped. And uh, you guys weren't here for the, the pre-show prep, but we did a, a short episode on parenting. What's it like to be two working executives with young kids? Well, uh, maybe we'll release that for fun afterwards. Yeah. Well, we also met in Miami when I was like nine, almost nine months pregnant. So <laughs> very fitting for our, still, our whole trajectory. Um, so Chelsea, I think there is a bunch of stuff that's fascinating about both your career um, and about kind of Amika over the last decade plus. Um, I think I'm going to start with your career at the at the beginning. And just for those that don't know, I think your progression um, from the time that you started at Amica to today is just fascinating, right? So I think number one, you've been at the brand for 13 years, super uncommon. I think number two, you started a year out of school as part of the founding team as just a business development manager, which I would assume was a pretty kind of uh, introductory role, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then within four years, you're president, global president. And that's twenty, and that's twenty sixteen. Then you go on to get acquired for what I assume is a, a great sum of money, um, and you were one of the largest independent hair care brands at that time. And you went from a brand at the time that you became president that was in the like, you know, sixties in terms of EMV ranking, um, all the way up to now you fluctuate in and out of the top five, uh, of, you know, uh, alongside an Olaplex and a Redkin and some of these other brands. So I think that that progression in, in such a what is a relatively short period of time is is what I want to spend most of my time on. Well, I'm going to try and like dig deep into the archives of like memory. I think sometimes you black out a little bit because you're just like, you know, going through the motions and getting it done. But I'm excited to dive into it. It's, you know, it's funny. I have the same feeling because like people bring up stories from the past because we've been doing Tribe for like 11 years now, right? So just mm-hmm. a little bit shorter than you. And uh, at the same time, it's like we just did a holiday party with a bunch of our old team members and brought in a bunch of legacy folks. And it was like being right back, right? It was uh, like some of the stuff, It like it doesn't feel it never like- never leaves your memory some decade. of it. Because it's so like, especially those moments that are just, I don't know, they're like either really high highs or really low lows. Like you'll never forget those, right? It's like no. your memory, so. Yeah, the death, the death, closely de- close death moments were the ones I don't forget. Um, yep. But let's- <laughs> Let's go real far back, just to, to go to the very beginning, because I think this says something about kind of your personality and your approach to life. You know, coming out of school, you went to Florida State, coming out of school, you went to a startup um, and you were there or you were at one company that went to a startup 
Um, you're there for a little while and then obviously joined Amica at what was assumed, presumably essentially a startup. Tell me like wh one, why did you choose to join Amica? And two, like what was it that attracted you to that startup environment versus saying go to a larger brand or a larger, larger institution? So I did spend the very few months, about six months of my early career in corporate. And I, mm -hmm. I hated it so much that I think I went to the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think about, you know, why did I hate it so much? Like, how did I end up in this whole kind of startup world? Um, I think an interesting fact that not a lot of people uh, who aren't, you know, in my, my close circle know is I kind of growth hacked my education also. So I graduated from university two and a half years early. So I did my four-year mm. degree in two years uh, wow. because in high school we had a program, which I'm not sure it even exists anymore, but you could take college courses your last two years of high school. So when I graduated um, high school, I had like an associate's, a level of associate's degree. So I could just kind of start my major when I went to Florida State. So I'm like, oh, I kind of growth hacked that and then, you know, got the quintessential, it was a recession, it was 2008. Um, I had a degree in fashion merchandising. So clearly not many people were going to be hiring in fashion merchandising or retail in 2008. And because I was offered a job right out of school that paid well, was going to, you know, move me, pay for my relocation, all of that. It was kind of like my, you know, of course your parents are like, you're stupid if you don't take that. I mean, like yep. you really want to move to New York city with no job, like uh, not sure about that and student loans. So I did that. I didn't like it. Um, you know, called up my friend who was in New York, barely getting by. We like, you know, got into on an apartment together. Really. I got into startups because I don't know, a friend of a friend, they needed help with something. And so I would help them with that. And I didn't know what a startup was. I didn't know this entrepreneur word, like what it was, what it meant. Um, and I kind of got hooked on it because it was a little bit, um, you know, you have this sense of autonomy, but like a lot of responsibility, but none at the same time, right? Because it's not like there's really a, that big of a business at that moment in time. Um, and a lot of pressure to make it successful, a lot of pressure you put on yourself, um, creativity, right? It kind of blends all these things that I loved as opposed to the corporate lifestyle, which I felt was very limiting. And it's like, oh, well, you're only first year, so you need to sit in the back of the room and not speak up. And you need to come at 6 a.m. and leave at 9 p.m. and like put in the app. It's like very high school. Like, you know, you have to spend <laughs> your four years before you're allowed to be a senior and like, you know, beat, beat up on the freshman. It just had that like very corporate ladder aspect that I was not excited about. I wanted to growth hack it. So that's how I ended up in startups. Um, and I ended up at Amica through a Craigslist ad as crazy and hilarious as that is. I mean, I couldn't afford to post jobs on like, you know, Monster, I think it was at the time where, where we used to look for jobs. <laughs> um, I was on Craigslist, shockingly, you know, it was in the middle of Brooklyn, which we're still there. The area was not nice. Um, you know, I called my mom saying, if I don't, he's going to hear from me in an hour, like call the police, um, <laughs> you know, and it all, it all works out. Right. But in the end, um, I joined because I loved beauty. I did not know you could have a career in beauty and I loved sales. I've always loved sales since I was a kid. Um, you know, looking back all the times that I was like, selling donuts and coffee at like the local, you know, fair in our city to selling Avon with my grandma, right? Like I just had this 
connection to sales and to beauty. And this was the opportunity. I thought it would be like a one year stint. And, you know, 13 years later, I'm still here. Yeah, I had a similar story. I graduated in 2009. I also, I took a bunch of AP tests going in. So I started as essentially a sophomore. Now I stretched it out. I did the opposite of you. I was like, I don't want this to end. So I like <laughs> found a way, I like doubled, I added a concentration or a minor. I was like, how can I make this at least four years? So I did the opposite. I wasn't trying to hustle into the work environment. <laughs> but, uh, but, and then when I was coming out of school, I had a few different job offers and uh, one of them was from Wells Fargo and I committed. I was like, I'm going to do it kind of like you corporate. I'm going to do that. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't like in a, in a branch, right? It was like a, you know, corporate job or whatever. And so, um, and then I had an interview. So it's supposed to start in a month and I had an interview on a Friday with this startup company and I show up and it's in a, not a very good area. I go in, I try to open the, uh, I, you know, I get greeted by the woman at the front who was the head of, turned out to be the head of HR and she was in like a velour sweatsuit and looked very hungover. And then they like open up the conference room and that door handle falls off, off the conference room. And then my future boss, who's now like been a good friend and was a mentor for a long time, uh, goes in, puts his feet up. He's got sandals on backwards hat. And like puts his feet up on the table during the interview and like, like get to the end of it. And I'm like, man, that was weird. <laughs> like, you know, I was into it. But it was weird. They call me I'm like, Hey, really like you. Can you start Monday? And I was like, Oh, oh my God. God. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I've got a month to kill until my other job starts, like whatever. And so I started working there and it turns out, I mean, the company was growing super fast. It was really exciting. They'd raised a bunch of money and um, and so I called, I felt really bad. I called Wells Fargo like the week before I was supposed to start. I was like, Hey, uh, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do this. And similarly, my mom was not real happy about, or not, you know, upset, but she was like, are you, are you sure? Like, are you, are you sure this is, you know, but it changed my whole life. Um, and you, you know, like you said, you learn so much, uh, and there aren't the same boundaries of age, like, you know. You can progress very quickly if you're doing a good job because you get sucked into these management roles when the company's growing. You can get sucked into leadership roles because they'd rather promote from within than hire from outside, right? If they could. So, uh, and you're yeah. also more invested, I feel, right, in the success of something that's so small and that you're so kind of attached to yeah. versus when you're in a big corporate environment. It's like, okay, you want to do a good job because, you know, for, for personal success, and that's how you you know, progress in life, but it's, you're, yeah, okay. You like the brand or you like the, you like fashion or you like beauty or whatever it is, but it's not like yours, uniquely yours. And I think if you get in in a small company, you have that aspect as well, that like allows you to be a little bit more married to the work. Yeah. Okay. So let's take the next step. So now you're like 19 or 20 and then somehow in the next four years, you become global president. Um, so how how did that happen? Like, how did that happen over such a short period of time? Because um, four years is pretty fast. I think um, it, so I think it was six years because I started in 2010 and then I started as president oh, I thought it was 2016. 2012 to 16. Okay, so six years. Yeah, uh, and I, but I knew that role was kind of coming. Um, we had kind of solidified what that would look like about six months before it. Um, how did I do that? I mean, so I started in, in sales. I think my title really at the time was sales manager. And then as, as I was like really in it, I'm like, I'm doing more than just sales. Like I'm really like business development at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, it's the, the true sales, the, the cold calling. I mean, you know, I picked up the phone and 
cold called our first retailer, which is this small beauty retailer in the Midwest called Beauty Brands, which is still you never a client of ours, funny enough. You never, you never forget Never him. forget him. I never forget that call. Like I, the guy who used to be the buyer ends up being the DMM when he picks up the phone. He's like, yeah, send us some samples. And I was like, all right, okay. You know, Ricky's <laughs> New York City and you know, all the like kind of old classics. You know, getting in at the sales capacity was really interesting because it's, Yes, it's sales, but it blends so many other things together, right? In a way, mm -hmm. there's a lot of marketing attached to it. No, are you doing like PR and influencer side of marketing? But you're thinking, okay, how, how do, who's the customer group? I don't know, whether it's Sephora, who's their customer? What are they looking for? Um, and I did this globally. So the founders had a global vision. And I can tell you, it's really hard to build a brand, let alone doing it over and over again in every country. So we've kind of paired back on that. But at the time it was, you know, very exciting, glamorous and ambitious. So I was probably on the road four out of five days every week for a couple of years. Shocking that I, you know, eventually got married, but I found somebody who could tolerate that lifestyle, um, you know, worked really hard, was passionate about the work um, and had a lot of success because of that and brought in all of our biggest clients. You learn a lot. I mean, you know, from handwriting orders and handing them to the warehouse person who's packing, right? When you're super, super small to as the company is growing and you put in infrastructure and you hire teams and, you know, you're in your early 20s, never managed anyone before. Sometimes you hire people that are older than you. There's there's so many things that you learn and you have to learn really on the job. Like I'd say most of my job was figuring out what my job really was outside of like just making the company successful by getting clients and getting sales out. Um, and I had a lot of opinions about marketing at the time. We only had one person and marketing was very different. I think back then, especially for startups, like the only, we didn't really have a budget. So we spent money on social media, yep. bloggers, vloggers, right at the time, like, and press. And we had a PR agency and like one person who still at the company, um, Lindsay, who you might've met, who uh, oversees all of our influences today. She was our first like marketing manager hire and she's all of our, our press at the time. And I just had so many opinions and our founder and my boss at the time, he's like, I, you do it. <laughs> you, you, you do it. And we kind of built out, you know, this, this job description. And um, at the time we want, we had two brands. We still do wanted to kind of start to separate the brands, have like, you know, sales, marketing, education, et cetera, for each brand, and then have a shared service model. So that's how this kind of role came to be. And a lot of it was really, you know, figuring out, figuring out on the fly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's cool. Well, let, I, which part do you want to hop into there? I want to talk about the marketing thing for a second. So let's go there. So, you know, so you start it, you start, you take over marketing. So call this 2016 or so, right? Um, and, you know, in terms of the actual stats. So at the time, you guys are the number 59th ranked brand in 2016 in our kind of EMB rankings, right? Which is just how many influencers are talking about you. Next year, number 44. Next year, number 23. Year after that, number 11. Year after that, number 10. Year after that, number seven, right? Um, and during that time, you guys have passed brands like L'Oreal, Paul Mitchell, uh, Matrix, Moroccan Oil, right? Like big household brand names, um, as well as, you know, roughly 50 other brands. So, or 45 other brands. So what was it that you guys did specifically with regards to the influencer and kind of social piece 
um, that led to such an impressive and consistent kind of upward trajectory over these last, you know, five, six years. So the first paid in, well, we probably did a couple of random paid things throughout the years, because I think there was this false understanding that, oh, if you pay a YouTube creator who has a million followers, they will come, right? Like yeah, this yeah. is going to be our Oprah moment. And then the sales are just going to be banging down our door. And so <laughs> that was, uh, you know, pre 2016. And then in 2017 was our first paid campaign. It was called wash your way. And it was, we were rolling out a whole collection of shampoos and conditioners based on different hair benefits and needs. And we kind of looked at it as, oh, we're going to have a group of creators that had blonde hair for our Buster Brass collection. And, you know, we had six different collections we were coming out with. And that, as you saw, was kind of the first like jump in rank that we had. And we did these, they were very campaign specific. And outside of those campaigns, we weren't really doing that much. So we had these moments in time. They were like burst throughout the year. 2018, we relaunched our packaging and we launched into Sephora stores with our hair care. Because prior to that, we'd only been in um, like smaller retailers and professional salons. And that was when we really started getting like sinking our teeth more into influencer marketing as being like our primary, um, really primary marketing expense period, because we didn't have huge budgets to spend on any sort of bigger media, of course, not like out of home or even print, which was still sort of relevant at the time. Um, and we essentially, you know, from that moment on, looked at influencer marketing as the long game and looking for people who embodied our brand and, and held the same values regardless of size and started to look at them in groupings, right? So we had like kind of the macro, the mid-tier, micro. Um, and just curating and, and reaching out and, and bringing these people into the fold, into our community and really building those relationships. We started allocating uh, budget towards bringing everyone together and having these big events that were a way for us to connect um, on a deeper level. And then in 2019, we started um, doing more on a contractual level. So mm -hmm. before we were, I guess, committed on paper, we had this strategy but then it was more formalizing those relationships with our um what we call like our, our amica team our a team and we've just continued to play into that strategy you know working with levels uh influencers of all levels um and really valuing the relationship building and you can see that i mean the top performing content by emv all comes from creators that are essentially organically posting about amica because you know we have that relationship that we've built you know whether they were part of a couple of campaigns where they are most relevant and they're posting about us in between them because they just genuinely love the brand and, and love working with the team. Um, and that's really paid off for us. But, you know, a lot of those relationships go back six years or more. Yep. Yep. And that's, I think people underestimate kind of the lifetime value of some of these people, right? Like mm -hmm. what is one of those creators going to be worth to the brand over the next 20 years, 30 years, right? It's unbelievable. 100%. And I think, you know, people tend to, and I think this is partially a result of the length of people's careers and the way that you report results. They tend to get very, very focused on the short term, right? Because like, oh, I'm only going to be here for another year. I need to make the numbers pop before I leave. Or, oh, we've got a big quarterly earnings call coming up. 
or, you know, we have to report on results this quarter, you know, we need to make it pop. And it's like that kind of long-term relationship focused, consistent relationship is the pattern that we see work over and over and over again when people do it. Right. But people are always, I think, um, either conditioned to, or have a, or just not positioned to, to really take that approach. Right. So, um, that's really, really cool. I mean, the first, this is kind of a side note. I mean, the first software that we paid for was related to influencer outside of, of course, like, uh, inventory and things that like make your business yeah, run. Payroll. QuickBooks, I think it's <laughs> like probably the first thing we had, but, um, you know, like a significant investment that we put into being able to have that transparency behind the results of our campaigns and also, you know, just making it easier to facilitate the relationship aspect, like a CRM tool essentially. And of course, yeah. you know, we've done more and more in that space since then, but we really have always seen the value in that. And I think, you know, looking at the larger companies, they they haven't been in that space as long, but they have much bigger budgets for sure. So you can like come in yeah. and like kind of like pay pay your way in. Um, but it's hard to pay your way to those relations, like those true relationships that you have. Well, money doesn't create emotional connection, right? No. So I think that, um, and I think that uh, the other thing that's interesting that you mentioned there was like, oh, we started investing. Well, two things that are interesting. One, you said, oh, you know, well, it was the bulk of our budget because blah, 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 blah. It was like, wasn't that obvious in 2016 that that should be the bulk of your budget, right? Like, or 2018 then, even. Really. Yeah, right. And so, and it's still getting there for a lot of brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Second, it seems like you personally have invested. So in this digital world, right? Everybody always assumes digital. The great part is you can scale it up. You can, you know, whatever. But for you guys, the thing that I see is like, you know, you are flying in the influencers to build these relationships. You're on the road meeting with all these retailers day after day after day. I know that you guys are really aggressive in your kind of, you know, industry event strategy as well, right? Like I know that that's something that you guys also invest in really heavily. It seems like for you personally, and I can tell you just from the way that we've interacted, like I can tell that you're somebody that invests in relationships outside of even just influencers. Is that something that you think a lot about? Is that something that you've observed? Is that like really intentional or is that, am I, uh, am I, am I not seeing, am I seeing something wrong here? I think it's, it's definitely intentional and maybe we didn't realize it for the first few years that that was unique about the way we operated the business in the industry. And once you kind of figure out that, oh, that's how we're different and that's what people like about us, well, what does that mean? How do we communicate that to potential customers? We did this whole exploration of, you know, the brand DNA versus how we talk about ourselves and, you know, the brand messaging aspect, which has become more and more important over the last, you know, I'd say three, four years, you know, what's your purpose, your values, um, your story, that whole founder led uh, branding. And when we dive into it, I mean, at its essence, Amika means friend. And we really do look at everybody who either works on the brand or is a stylist that carries the brand or is an educator for us or who we meet at a trade show, these industry trade shows. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just this like big community that has an impact on the future of the brand. So if you look at where we started and who we are today, 
you would see many iterations of Amika, right? Like we're <laughs> constantly reinventing ourselves, evolving. And that has to do a lot with the people we surround ourselves with who are just making the brand better and better. Um, of course, you have to have like those core pieces that never change. It's like, um, I don't know, as cheesy as it sounds, it's like, you know, you and I are evolving as people, right? Like at our at our core, we're still the same people, but you have different mm -hmm. things that stretch your horizons. You become a parent that obviously like changes your whole um, view. And I'd say the brand is quite similar in that way. Um, and that's very unique and different for especially professional hair care because professional brands at their essence are usually started by like a singular, like big name person and everything is built around them and their ideas and philosophies. Um, and it's also been kind of exclusive. So there's um, a lot of brands in the space who, you know, for a salon to carry them, they have to spend like 15,000 or 20,000 on an opening order, which in and of itself excludes certain types of salons from buying into it. And we've never had that. And so because we have this universality around the brand, we welcome everybody in. It does have, you know, it does exude that community aspect that you're probably kind of feeling or observing. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, I think I've talked about this in another episode at some point, but like, I never really understood the concept of community until I'd say like the last three years or so for me, three or four years where it's like, it's like, oh shit, like there's like a growing community of people that we have built relationships with over time that took like a decade, right? And and it manifests itself in all these weird ways. The podcast is one of them, mm -hmm. but um, and then, you know, and I particularly saw it when like we sold the company, you had all these people like, oh, I knew, like, or I could tell from the beginning, or I had whatever. And regardless of whatever their opinions were, it was like they had that connection, right? um to both the people and to the brand um so i i uh it's a it's a, it's a buzzword thing. the community you know has become one of those like marketing buzzwords that i think people glossier i think made people go whoa what are they doing and community okay we need that thing how do we go and get that thing and you can't the, just growth hack that no that's the problem is those things take time right time and effort um, not just money or, you know, sophistication digitally. Um, and having uh, values and things that connect, uh, you know, on an emotional level with people. I think everyone wants to believe that they buy something for a rational reason, but at the end of the day, you have more of an emotional connection behind why you choose to buy something over something else. And um, if you're very good at speaking your truth as a brand, you attract the people who, think the same way as you, right? And they just are going to have a stronger bond with what you're doing. And they're going to be, they're going to evangelize for your brand more. And so you have to kind of build it that way as well. 100%. So let's talk about this kind of, we're talking, I feel like a lot of long time periods. And I think that's the other area that's really interesting about you from a career perspective is, you know, you essentially start at Amica out of school and then you've been there ever since, right? In you know, I think that the particularly since we've graduated, I think there's been a narrative around like, oh, you're supposed to do these like two to four year stints, and then you, you know you jump a level and you jump a level and you jump a level, and that's kind of how you do it. Um, what made you decide to kind of buck that trend, um, you know, and stick with a, a company for for 13 years? And I can tell you that for me, 
I look for it every time we recruit. I'm looking for like six, seven, eight, ten year stints. If I can find one of those, I'm like, oh shit, like I got to bring them in, right? Right. Because it's unique I know. And no, <laughs> but like every time I find one of those people and and they seem like a good fit, I'm like, I this is somebody I can build something with, right? Build something meaningful. Um. Anyways, talk to me about that a little bit. I love this question because I think um, I'm always thinking that. And it's definitely crossed my mind many times over the last 13 years. Definitely not recently, but I'd say that my partner gets a lot of credit for keeping me in one place because as anyone in a startup or like growth company knows, it's challenging. I can, you know, there are really hard days where you're just like questioning yourself. Like, should I leave and go to a bigger company where I'd be learning from people who have like more classic training yeah. uh, as versus, you know, really learning on the go. And when you're learning on the go, there's some really painful, I think with anything, anyway, you got to learn from your mistakes, but some things are definitely more painful that you probably could have avoided had you knew or had somebody in your, in your world who knew what to do. Um, I agree. I think there's so much to be said for committing. And I think if I think about this question, it's a little bit addictive now because most of the things that I'm working on and a lot of the team are working on are at least six months out, sometimes two years. I see I'm a part of the team that's doing the idea and also the execution. And so I feel like I'm more attached to it. And so I, I re reap the fruits of that. So that piece of it is addicting. And so you just, I don't know, like I, I like to win. I'm like a competitive person and I want to keep got, winning. We have too many similarities here. <laughs> And so that's where it's, um, that's where, yeah, you might question yourself or think, oh, I could go over here. The grass could always, the grass is not always greener. And I have a lot of friends who have done the two year to four year sense of different companies, right? So I've kind of gotten to witness and see, and some, some have panned out really well and some others, you know, not as much. And I think it depends to what industry you're in, like, what part of the, you know, your career, especially, you know, what you know, area um, of how to get there. I mean, finance, I can tell you, yes, that is the way to growth hack your career. It's to leave and go to different banks um, every, you know, three, four years, um, because that's just kind of the nature of how they do their promotion and hire. And that's how you make more money essentially in that industry. But not every industry is, is necessarily like that. Yeah, I just think you build these really meaningful connections with people, with the brand, with the job, with what you're doing. Like I saw there's somebody I respect a lot in the software industry. It was basically like if like your company's growing and you like your job and you like your boss, like mm -hmm. there's not it's not gonna get a lot better than that, right? Like that's 100%. like if you've got that going for you, like don't just go for the money grab, right? Like don't go for the short term. Um well, I think you have to, you have to assess the situation. So first yeah, it's yeah. your environment, right? Like you yeah. often, often can't see the forest through the trees or whatever that saying is, right? Like you have to be flexible and trust that if everything works out, it will pan out for you as well, right? So yeah. if you're in a positive, like a high potential environment, you feel like you're learning, you're growing, you're challenged, um, you have the ability to drive change regardless of the title that you have, right? If you have an idea, people will listen. You're in like a, a psychologically safe 
environment where um, you can, you know, kind of speak up and speak out and the company is growing, it, you know, it'll come, right? You, you have, you're very empowered in that environment and then the rest is up to you, right? What's in your control to be curious, to, get to constantly learn, um, obviously to be passionate about the work, to be dedicated. I think when you combine those two things, then success comes from that. And you can't say, I, I know it's quite common. It's like, oh, well, if my boss is in that job, then I can't have that job. And so therefore there's no growth opportunity. And so I'm going to go to a different place because that's the only way I'm going to grow. And that's not necessarily yeah. true, especially in a growing company, because you can't see what that org chart may look like in two years time. Or I had, no, this was definitely not on my plans, right? I thought I was going to make, stay at this company for a year and like, hightailed into something else right and next <laughs> you know i didn't see oh president yeah i want that job let me let me like work really hard and eventually maybe they'll let me interview for that role it's you know really prove yourself and um hopefully it'll pay off yeah i think the growing company element is a big one right and i think about it a lot like i really like the way you articulated it but it's like if the company's growing 50 percent a year jobs will create be created at roughly 50% a year, right? Like new jobs, new opportunities. And that may not necessarily always be up, right? It could be lateral. It could be mm -hmm. something that's like, oh, hey, we're now growing. It's like Taylor who helps us, you know, helps me with the podcast, leads the podcast with me. She shouldn't start out at our company thinking she would be leading podcasts, but it was like that opened up. She's super passionate about it. And it's like, oh, that's awesome. Like I'd love to learn and do that, right? And now, you know, we're top five, we just got the stats, top 5% most shared podcasts in the world, right? Like wow. That's really cool. So it's like, well, we actually have a lot of people on our, I'm not unique in this. So we have, a, we have yeah. definitely a group of, we call them like Amika OGs who have been there, like Lindsay's, I think she just celebrated eight years. Um, another person I actually went to college with, she started as my intern when I, like, I think my first year, you know, she celebrated 10 years. So it's, it's not, um, I'm not the only one, right? So, and they've all moved around and had lots of other growth opportunity. And so the commitment has, has paid off for them as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about sales just a little bit. Um, and then I'm gonna do one more question after that. And then we're gonna do a fun kind of end of show question. So, um, so one of the interesting things about sales, that was my background, right? That's what I grew up in. Um, and I think, most people don't know, but like the most common path to becoming CEO is sales, right? That's the most common kind of category that leads. Yeah. I didn't right. Know that. So <laughs> you didn't know that. There you go. So, um, so tell me about the role, like what, and I think part of the, well, I don't want to, I don't, I'll, I'll say my opinions afterwards, but for you, you know, you've mentioned that you've always really liked sales and that it was something that obviously you cut your teeth in professionally. Um, Talk to me about kind of sales, why it was important, what role it plays within a beauty company, because we haven't interviewed a lot of sales leaders on here, how that interacts and collaborates with the marketing and social teams. Um, talk to me about that a little bit. Sales is, those are your ears, your eyes and ears to the customer. And they're the ones living and breathing every day, why someone's buying something or not. And that is gold to a marketer. <laughs> people yeah. pay lots of money to find out <laughs> what people want and what they don't want in your products and in your company. And if you don't listen to those people, then, you know, what are you doing? I probably didn't, I definitely didn't see it that way 
starting out. I mean, I was looking at, okay, how do I help make this company successful distribution? What is that distribution strategy? Um, that in and of itself is very rooted in marketing. Um, people pr pricing, whatever the four P's and it's always evolved. So <laughs> we're kind of lost track people, of that. But, pricing, product promotion. There you go. Yes, but now it's class. like five like P's you. or S's or something. <laughs> I don't know. There's you know, different the... opinions on that. But yeah, I was looking at the landscape. Okay, I want to be in Sephora. So if I, if I want to be in Sephora, I can also be in Target. Although who can argue that today? Now everyone's mishmashing everywhere. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to be in professional. What does that look like? So outlining the, the sales strategy, the distribution strategy, what customers shop at Sephora. Okay. What products are they looking for? Um, you know, got into product development because we had a lot of people as a salesperson asking me for things that we didn't have. Okay. Let's go make those things, which, you know, product often sits with marketing. So they're very, very much intertwined. I think when you're running a bigger organization, people have to be very focused on their channel or, or what they're doing. Um, and I think that's something as you grow, people specialize, but the, the overarching idea doesn't really change, right? The salespeople are the closest to the customer, talk to them. Marketing needs to have a, a great relationship for that reason. And then you also have marketing who's thinking through like, you know, that future, what does that future look like? What ingredients are coming down? Like what are customers looking for on a, on a quantitative basis, right? Where we can look at, okay, they're really looking for hydration. Sales might say people are looking for masks, whereas marketing is kind of pulling that whole story together and giving them um, that, the, the storytelling aspect of, okay, you said they want this, we've got this, let's marry them together. And this is like how we romance it. And then you, you, the rest is up to the sales team. Uh, but they're very much intertwined. I think they're just, they're focused on different aspects of the, the marketing funnel. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I love the kind of sales as the eyes and ears, right? Like, I think that's something I also know, I feel like we've heard that a lot from the influencers as well, or about the influencers, I should say, that they can be the eyes and ears as well, because they're yeah. looking at all the products in the category. They know what they like, they know what they don't like, particularly, I would imagine, actually, let's go into that. What role, so one of the things I'm most curious about when it comes to the influencer space and the influencer space within the professional hair care industry is the role that these kind of hybrid influencers, professional hairstylists play um, in the industry. So you see this, we see this with K18, we see this with you guys, see this with Olaplex, where like those people end up being incredibly influential, right? Because they may only have, call it 50,000 fans, but those 50,000 fans are like other hairstylists, right? So like when they're listening to them, it's, it's really impactful. How do you think about the role of the kind of influencer hairstylist combo how do you, is, are those a lot of the people that you've built relationships with over time? I think the hairstylist influencer, it's stronger in numbers because you have mm -hmm. thousands of hairdressers and how they build their business is through social media mm -hmm. and really being able to cultivate a strong relationship with them. We're very dependent on our sales teams to do that, right? They have to... Mm really believe in the, the brand. They have to love the product. And stylists are the most discerning customer group that we have. And so, you know, where we say, yeah, Mika's cute, but it really works. And stylists are the proof. I mean, majority of our business still goes through the professional channel. Um, 
I'd say on the other side of things, you've got the bigger, bigger name stylists that you can work. I think that's, to me, that's really no different than how we work with consumer influencers from an innovation, from a product perspective. Um, in our world, it's a little bit different. I think in makeup, innovation can happen through influencers a lot easier just from the time to market, right? Because mm-hmm. you're creating shades. You're not usually innovating on the, the format or the, the texture. You know, we're on a two-year plus innovation pipeline. So how that ends up playing out from an influencer perspective is a little bit more challenge. But where we do get a lot is through like messaging and testing the product and um our influencers that we work with, whether they're consumer or stylist based, are both very much involved in, in that. We have different community groups that we manage where we do a lot of this testing and focus group work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really leads that our, the name of the product to how we talk about it, the vibe when it launches, the, the texture, how it performs. It's all based on the groups that we work with, whether it's, you know, we have consumer groups that we do focus tests on as well as um creators who are part of our community. And that's typically how we incorporate them in our innovation as opposed to, you know, X product by so such and such content creator. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting you mention the like hairstylists build their businesses via social media. I had never made that connection. I mean, it's obvious now, right? Like that's, if I'm like deciding which hairstylist to go to, I can go on their Instagram and look at like all the cool stuff that they've done and go, oh, okay, I'm validated. They know what they're doing, right? Like, oh, I want my hair to look like that, right? Like, yeah. oh, or whatever. And um, I just never made that connection. And what's interesting is we were looking at our data and I was like, I feel like we have a hole here. Like we hear it from professional hair care brands. So we get a lot of them as clients. And it's like, we're not monitoring the like, I've got a thousand fans. I'm a local hairstylist in Oklahoma or whatever, right? On Instagram. Like we're not monitoring that right now. And I feel like that was, uh, anyways, it was really useful for me. Okay. Last question. So I think this whole kind of clean at Sephora thing, um, obviously has become a very big deal, right? Um, and I think that, uh, and you can think about it from a consumer perspective, you know, if you've got, if you've got an aisle that's labeled clean, it's like, well, what's the other aisle? Like dirty? Right, it's like, dirty. <laughs> like, uh-oh. Like, I don't want to be in that one. <laughs> like, that's So as a, you can see why as a consumer, it would be such a big deal. And I can imagine being fairly contentious within the industry as well. So um, you guys obviously attained that seal, uh, I think, this year. And then, and you're only the third hair care brand to get that. So would love to know what was involved in achieving that status. And then uh, secondarily, now that you've had it for a little bit, how have you seen it affect things, either in terms of sell-through, in terms of reputation, in terms of interaction with you know third parties? Talk to me about that 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 process a little bit. So my answer, I'm going to invert your question. So I'd say in okay. terms of how it's how it's performing, it's very early days. So yep. we announced it in September. Mm. Um, that's when everything started to bear the the clean at Sephora seal um, and we're the second professional brand after Olaplex to receive the seal. So, and I say professional, there's other hair care brands that Sephora has um, that either started up clean at Sephora, I think almost all of them, or eventually um, got it later, like, like a Mika. Professional brands have different performance requirements because of what I was saying before, you know, you have hairstylists who have, 
all types of clients with all types of hair and needs. And you need to be able to meet that first and foremost. So you can't do that with like three products or five products. Most professional brands, if you look, we have probably 20. You look at brands like Redken, I don't even know, 80 maybe. And there's usually a reason for that. And from an ingredient profile perspective, you know, there's different types of ingredients that are whatever they're synthetic or they're petroleum based. Yep. And they've been tried and true for a long time. Why change them? But there has been innovation in ingredients. Yes, they are more expensive. Yes, they're harder to source. And sometimes it you know, has just never been done before. And you really have to push for that change. And if you've been, I mean, I don't work with these other brands, but if you have a product that's working really well, why change it? Why risk yeah. trying to clean it up and have, you know, a, a clean ingredient profile? Well, the consumer, that's what they want, right? They're, they're looking for better for you products that still, caveat, still have the same performance of the product that they already love or yeah. the current product they use. And that's really has been, was the biggest challenge um, for a couple of products to move them over to a clean profile. Um, we also, at the same time, made everything vegan. We changed a lot of the sourcing of ingredients. So making sure things were responsibly sourced, which when you're a small company, which we're not really that small anymore, but you know, medium size, it's, it's a lot of work going through every single ingredient and every single product, figuring out what raw meant, you know, who's supplying our supplier of that ingredient, yeah, right? And yeah. making sure it was responsibly sourced. So there's a lot of legwork on that end. Um, and there's another seal that we're going after for Sephora. So they have like their, their next level, which is their clean plus planet positive, which I think mm -hmm. came out earlier this year, or maybe last year, because um, we want to be the first professional brand to receive that seal. And that goes to the next level of also um, responsibility, not only from like a packaging perspective that you're, you're, um, packaging is sustainable is um you know you're not using secondary you're not adding like boxes to a plastic well, you're pushing bottle towards, like, and... is it carbon neutral is that the term um or so we're client neutral? so we're climate, climate. neutral certified yeah. um but there's they have all these different attributes right so you have to meet there's different buckets and you have to meet at least you know three out of the five within that mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like a scoring similar to b corp um which we're also going after by the way very close to the end of that um, it's in terms of clean versus dirty to go back to that piece. I wouldn't say necessarily the brands who aren't clean are dirty, right? Because up until I'm talking September, purely we from weren't... a consumer perspective. I'm not yeah. saying like they are, I'm just saying like, as a consumer, you read that and it's like, well, if you're not that, then this is probably what you are, right? Like it, it says, I mean, it's a very, uh, yeah. yeah I think anyways, it, the, the word clean um, in the eyes of a consumer, depending on, I guess, the sophistication of a, that you are in beauty, um, every retailer uses a different designation of clean. They don't have the same. The reason why we chose clean at Sephora is we really believed in how they were measuring it, right? They weren't just saying clean if you were free from these like five ingredients, but they also weren't going to the nth degree and like, you know, kind of making um, an enemy out of ingredients that really aren't necessarily bad for people or bad for the environment. Um, yep. 
So there's, if you don't, if maybe you're allergic to a certain ingredient, there's that aspect of it that, you know, it's probably low on the allergen list. There's, um, yeah, I mean, without getting into too nuanced or, or too many de details of it, the reason why we went after the clean and Sephora seal is exactly that, to kind of clean up and have a third party verification that we are a brand that cares about high quality ingredients, that we are pushing the envelope to look for things that are better for you or better for the environment also. It's not just about, you know, humans, but there's a lot of ingredients that are in beauty products that get into um, our waterways and, you know, have different detrimental effects on um, marine life, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, mining mica, there's just different ingredients that can also have an environmental impact that they were also considering, which is the clean plus planet that we're, that we're kind of going after. Very cool. Very impressive. Um, I think it's, well, we can, there's a lot to talk about there. And I think we're, uh, we're pushing the limits on this, the show timing. So let's do one last fun end of show question. So you are also now, you know, call it, I believe about four years into having kids. And I know that when I had kids, I was like, my wife and I are like 30 minutes of TV max, if any, per day. <laughs> now, you know, don't follow that. We watch, you know, a little Disney movie in the morning, a little at night. You know, I'd say it's about 40 minutes, 40 minutes. But, you know, we, uh, I'm sure my wife never planned on serving them dino nuggets, but those now happen every once in a while. They're the organic kind, but it's still a dino nugget. Um, so what was the thing that you went to kids and you're like, never going to do that? And now you do it. Hmm. That's, that's, that's the hardest question you've asked me today. <laughs> <laughs> the screen time for sure. I mean, by the time you have two kids, like, how, come on, how are you supposed to do bath time with two kids? Like one's got to get the iPad, you know? Um, I mean, you know, I have a six month old, so maybe one day they'll get into the same routine. Uh, I would say the, like the, the negotiating and mm. the, um, kind of the prize aspect of like, if you do this, you get this. I was like, I will never be that mom who's like, you go to the patty, you get an m, &M. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like that's <laughs> a normal thing. Like why does anyone need to get a treat for going to the bathroom? Which actually my daughter doesn't. She was really great in that, but like everything else. It's like, if you let me give you a COVID test, I'll give you a lollipop. It's just like uh, next level <laughs> negotiation skills. Those are always, at least my negotiation skills will stay like, you know, nice and fresh because I have to do it with like a little dictator. Oh my God. It is, uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot of things you go and be like, well, I'll never do that. And then you're there. It's like, I don't know. Anyways. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time today, Chelsea. This is a long time coming and it is so impressive to see what you guys have all accomplished and what you've personally accomplished. And so thank you for taking out the time today. I learned a lot. I know a lot of people will also learn a lot, so. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you asked all the questions. And I think people probably always wanna ask me, but they don't wanna be rude, right? They're like, wait, how did you do that? Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, it's funny. I like went through this whole back and forth. When we first started the podcast, I like, would just start blank sheet of paper. What, is, what are the most interesting things I want to know about this person? And in the middle, I was like, oh, well, like I've created so many questions. I can just recycle these, right? Like it seems more efficient. And then I was like, oh, this is so boring. And so I just start blank slate, just look at the person and go, what do I want to know? Like what is special about this person and that they can, that I can learn from, right? Because everybody has something that they're really good at that I'm not or that they're better at. So 
Uh, I really appreciate that. It's very refreshing. (laughs) Awesome. Well, have a great weekend and thank you again for taking the time. Thank you. Be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at creatoriq.com.